0: Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Dan Huger. Eric Cohn is out this week. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And... If you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Sarah Negri, Acton's Research Project Coordinator, and John Panero, Director of Research here at Acton. Today we'll be talking about the latest kinetic, political, and rhetorical escalations by the Russian Federation in the ongoing war against the Ukraine. But first, I want to begin our discussion closer to home here in the United States. While there is a wide-ranging national consensus that today is indeed Monday, and that consensus even extends to the fact that it is October 10th, there are, however, two additional days listed on my calendar that I noticed this morning, Columbus Day as well as Indigenous People's Day, about which there is some dispute. One of the questions I would like to explore today is if there need be any sort of dispute. Lord Acton beautifully spells out the importance of Columbus in his lecture titled The New World. "...rejected by Portugal, he made his way into Spain, and he was found starving at the gate of a Franciscan convent. And the place where he sank down is marked by a monument, because it is there that our modern world began. The friar who took him in and listened to his story soon perceived that this ragged mendicant was the most extraordinary person he had ever known, and he found him patrons in the court of Castile." There, Columbus made an argument... On how to get to Asia, quote, it was better to sail out into the West for the route. That route would be scarcely 3000 miles to the extremity of Asia. The other would be 15,000 apart from the tremendous circuit of Africa, the extent of which was ascertained by Diaz while Columbus was pursuing his uphill struggle. The basis of the entire calculation was that the circumference of the Earth was 18,000 miles at the equator and that Asia begins, as shown in uh, Toscanelli's chart, somewhere about California. Misled by his belief in cosmographers, he blotted out the Pacific and estimated the extent of water to be traversed at one-third of the reality. The Spaniards, who were consulted, pointed out the flaw. For the true dimensions were known, but they were unable to demonstrate the truths against the great authorities cited on the other side. The sophisms of Columbus were worth more than all the science of Salamanca. The objectors who called him a visionary were in the right, and he was obstinately wrong. To his auspicious persistency in in error, Americans owe, among other things, their very existence, end quote. Columbus's legacy is more complicated than that, however. His journey to the New World inaugurated the Columbian Exchange, the widespread transfer of plants, animals, precious metals, commodities, culture, human populations, technology, diseases, and ideas. And also, it began a long legacy of conflict between indigenous peoples of the New World and those from the old. What should we as Americans in general, and as Christians in particular, what should we see in this Colombian legacy?
1: There's so many answers to that question, the big one. So, what should so as Americans? Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to speak for 300 and what 50 million people here, uh, which I can't do, but I can I can speak for myself as an American, and I can say there's a lot of things we can learn from Columbus. First of all, uh, one of them is how we ought to assess historical figures particularly those that are highly contested. So is uh, Thomas Jefferson the author of the Declaration? Yes. Okay, that's a little, a little more complicated than that, but, but yes, right? Did he found a university? He did. Did he fight for religious liberty? He did. Was he also a slave owner? Yes, right? And we, kn- we know all that about Jefferson. So I think Columbus is a good example of somebody we can take and as grown-ups approach figures in history who we know are not perfect, but there's no doubt that he's important. You don't condemn unimportant people, right? And you, yeah. don't, you don't generally praise unimportant people either. Uh, so we know that. And uh, I mean, I'll leave it at that and let, let Sarah join in here just answering the question about, so what should we Americans think about Columbus? Well, the capital, the federal district is the district of Columbia. Columbia was shorthand for referring to, to the, the country in the first place. So the, these kinds of the kind of uh, uh, language even coming from Columbus about the New World, uh, these are things that we can't really forget. But we also don't want to forget uh, the tremendous devastation that resulted. So while uh, you mentioned the Columbian Exchange, and I think of uh, the disease, especially and especially in the Caribbean, where ninety-nine percent of the population was wiped out by disease. Uh, Disease is unintentional, although there were times that historians will say these were sometimes intentional. Uh, Those are contested, however. Uh, The uh, Smallpox blankets and such in the American West uh, have been accusations about that. But at least in the Caribbean, this this was devastating. It was also devastating and helped Cortez conquer the Aztecs, so we know that about disease. We also know, and if you read Columbus's journals— uh, you can see how much trade was already taking place the moment Columbus landed. And he writes in his journal about those Indians, as he calls them, because he th- I mean, we all know that story, right? That he, so he, he thinks he sailed all the way, all the way to India, and he's, he and his men are all lucky that there was another continent in between or they all would have died and run out of water and, and run out of food. Some of them are better at haggling than others, and he's very impressed with the ones who can haggle very well. So there's the easy ones, and then there's the not-so-easy ones. But he's impressed with them all in general. Um, he's impressed with the, uh, the, the population he meets in general. He's part of a world that had just finished, as the Spanish called it, the Reconquista in Spain. He's part of a world that still has the crusading mentality that had not existed elsewhere in Western Europe for a couple hundred years. And there's a lot of reasons for that, of course, in Spain, beyond just the reconquest in Spain, but also the uh, Ottoman Empire trying to get out of the Mediterranean, etc. cetera. His men bring that mentality. There's others that are worth talking about, and I hope we get to them today, like Bartolome de las Casas, when we, when we want to learn about. So what happened and why? And how do we have a day, anyways, Americans named after Christopher Columbus in the first place?
2: Yeah, I'd like to— sort of echoed John's sentiments about why this is valuable as Americans in terms of our history. With all of the naming conventions after Columbus, you can see that he was valued in prior centuries by Americans as very important, and I think we shouldn't discount custom in terms of cities that have been named after him, monuments of him. Certainly historical perspectives can shift, and I think we've seen more of a shift lately to the errors of Columbus and his um, explorers. But I think you should also look at how he's been valued in the past. And history is messy, so it's important that we remember the history. There is,
0: you know, Lord Acton used to say that great men are almost always bad men. And when you have these deeds that have world historical repercussions, some of those repercussions are are going to be for ill effect. Now, there is someone that John brought up, uh, Das Casas, who is also a great man in his own right and a great theologian who brings to bear, I think, I think a lot of a lot of when we think about how we think about a lot of these uh, a lot of these conflicts. As Christians, we have very early Christian responses to the excesses, to the negative aspects of, of colonization. John, could you unpack a little bit of that for us?
1: I can. I, w- I would first say let's be careful on let's be careful on labels like good and bad, especially e- even when we're dealing with Columbus. So, it, is it true that after Columbus? The uh, the Colombian Exchange began. The conquest began. The conquistadors, encomienda system, etc. The English, the French, the Dutch—you name it—that's all true, but that doesn't mean Columbus perpetrated some of the horrors that we're talking about. Here.
0: Absolutely. Yes. In
1: fact, he's, he's, there, there are descriptions, especially by Las, Las Casas, who I get to in a moment, describing uh, uh, Spanish soldiers wiping out entire villages—men, women, and children—in the place, you know, just knee deep in blood. There's arguments among theologians in the church, Las Casas included, arguing against this, that forcible conversion is okay. And so that it's okay to put people to the sword to convert them. And the arguments in response to that, usually given by Dominicans, but not by Franciscans, but that's not that doesn't go in every case. But these debates, not just about the humanity of the Indians, but whether forcible conversion is okay. And so there's these famous debates that Las Casas, for instance, participated in. And he's using Aristotle to say it's not okay, and his opponent Sepulveda is using Aristotle to say, yeah, it's 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 actually all right, it, and here's why. So Las Casas came shortly after Columbus. He was an owner of an encomienda. The encomienda system uh, was the uh, is the system when you think of the horrors of of at least Spanish colonization. It's encomienda. These people are uh, the. The locals, the colonized are entrusted to somebody and they're not quite slaves, but they're not quite not slaves. So the land, the people, everything's entrusted. This was a system that had been used in Spain. It's also a system discovered in Mexico, for instance. In other words, there's a a local version of this as this as well. I mean that's part of the story. When you think of Cortez and you wonder how can a couple hundred people conquer the Aztecs, it helps that there's a lot of people who hate the Aztecs' guts. Yeah, for for what they've been doing to their neighbors, along with of course the the disease which uh, which uh, uh, harmed the the Aztecs. But back to Las Casas. So Las Casas came to the same area, the Caribbean. He sees these horrible things. He's an incom he's an for a while, and then he underwent a conversion. I think around 1510, 1514, somewhere And there. So that, that's pretty that's pretty soon after Columbus's voyages, and uh, he went back. And he's talking to uh, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and the kings in Spain, and the Pope, and he's telling them, look, this is terrible. Uh, you might be trying to spread the gospel, but here, here's what else is going on. And he's mainly talking about the, the bloodletting and the attacks and how bad the incoming system is. And this, this led to debates and changing of laws. But as the English le- later learned about America, you can make laws in England— like the Navigation Acts, yeah. it doesn't mean the people thousands of miles away across the ocean are going to obey those laws. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I don't know how much more you want me to say about no, Las Casas, I... the, the famous, famous Dominican and these debates who uh, helped bring about the new laws of the Indies. And um, at least at the college where I used to teach at, there was a dormitory named after Las Casas. He's one of the more famous uh, um, Dominicans. But he also, at one point, suggested uh, African slavery as a replacement rather than enslaving the Indians. So there's there's not a lot of perfection to go around. In fact, there's none among mm-hmm. people. Yeah. But but th- these are things to keep in mind as well, even when we're talking about Las Casas.
2: Well, I like what you said about them still having the conversation, though they're they're considering the moral implications of exploration already in that time. They're you said they're both using Aristotle to kind of justify their own position. So. I wonder, I mean, there's, there's different moral considerations that we maybe put more weight on today, but it's not like they weren't thinking about it at the time and what it meant for their culture and the culture that they were um, experiencing on the other side of the world. I don't know. I feel like sometimes we can look at one factor, like that they were encouraging slavery or that they owned slaves, and that has become sort of the utmost moral factor. And yes, that's very problematic, but it sounds like they were also evaluating that at the time within their different cultural framework. Is that the case?
1: Yes, and Las Casas was able to win the day with argument. So there is a historian who is famous in the mid 20th century, Will Durant, because he wrote these huge tomes on the, the history of the world, which I, I would say is a pretty ambitious project, right? And one of the things he, he said, is it when it comes to judging those in the past, while it might be unfair to judge from the future and from our own uh, moral sensibilities, I'm not sure this is accurate, by the way, I'm just, I'm just talking about uh, Durant. He said, You can judge people by the sentiments and judgments of their, their own time. So, it, in a way, that could lead us to be more condemnatory of the conquerors, right? Because there, there are people saying, no, you can't forcibly convert. No, you can't enslave them. In fact, in general, slavery is a bad idea, and here's, you know, is, is immoral, and here's why. And uh, But the fact that there's a debate, sure, what's not true is that the Spanish were unique in this. So yeah. what Oliver Cromwell did... Is translate Las Casas's famous book, "The Destruction of the 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 Indies," translate it so that uh, it could serve as a rationale for the English conquest of places like Jamaica and elsewhere in, in the Caribbean when, when Cromwell was in charge of England during the during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And I think I want to say uh, Las Casas's "Destruction of the Indies" went through maybe a, a hundred editions in its first hundred years. I mean, it was just translated time and again into Dutch, into English, into, into German. And gave birth to this idea that the the Spanish were unique perpetrators in the conquest, uh, but there's. There's enough guilt in that sense to go to go around.
0: There was a fascinating presentation this past Friday at Acton. Um, we had our second annual sort of academic colloquium from Christian political economy to Christian socialism. And the historian Michael Dowma at Georgetown, who's our reviews editor at the Journal, gave a fascinating presentation of slavery in New Netherlands and among the early... Dutch settlers of Manhattan, Long Island, the Hudson River Valley, and a lot of that history is less well-documented or well-publicized than what you have, and I think, I think many historians refer to this now as the black legend of there was a concerted effort, although these evils of slavery happened, um, although this legacy happened. The unique sort of attention to Spain is something of a political project of its own by Protestant princes, kings, uh, to paint the Spanish as sort of uniquely cruel when we know that this is a sort of endemic phenomena in New World colonization among all of the European powers. Um, Now, some of those systems were more brutal than others. Um, There are areas in in Spanish colonial do- domains, where it's more brutal than in others. And it's it's important to appraise those systems, but it's also important not to localize that injustice among just one segment of the population, or to put it all on a singular figure like Columbus, as is often happens in these debates.
1: I think that's the question about Columbus Day is he does make a target there's certainly real things to think about that maybe once upon a time in, in the United States and in schools, they, we didn't think about them. Sort of the, the, the missing indigenous equation and the death toll, uh, uh, those things are definitely worth thinking about. So, the, the question maybe a question we, I, I would want to ask is why do we have things like Columbus Day and Martin Luther King Day? And also Indigenous Peoples Day, which is on Columbus Day. Mm-hmm. Why do we why do we have days like this? How do we decide to have days like this? There's this civil religious sensibility that we need to have these holidays, which usually evolve into shopping days for the most part if, if the day's off. Yeah. right? Uh, and then there's, of course, the holy days for people, which are also considered holidays and on some calendars. So it was Franklin Roosevelt that... Approved Columbus Day as a federal holiday, but it had existed before that in some states. Mm-hmm.
2: I've been thinking a lot about this kind of leading up to this conversation. I didn't even know until recently that Columbus Day was implemented in response to the Italian American community being persecuted on some level. And it seems to me that 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 makes me question the idea of celebration in general. Like, what are celebrations for, particularly national celebrations? So I was thinking through some of our other holidays. Fourth of July, you hope that everybody celebrates that in America. I mean, that's that's kind of the foundational one. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, maybe Thanksgiving, you've got declared as a national holiday. People celebrate that regardless of political, religious convictions, but most of the others are either religious or on some level only affect maybe a portion of the population. So when you're talking about things like Veterans Day, everyone should celebrate that, but but people are going to celebrate it more when it hits closer to home, when you have a veteran in your family. And so it's interesting to talk about what makes a federal holiday and what makes a national holiday. How do you want to single out certain days for the whole country to celebrate? And I, I think it's just hard to do that with every single holiday we have. Even, even New Year's, things like that, certain people of, of religious subcultures won't celebrate January 1st as their New Year's because there's a religious dimension to it for them. And so Columbus Day made me think, well, maybe this is something where a subculture of America was sort of turned into a national holiday, and it's hard to make everybody happy with something like that.
0: What, one of the things you look at, at, this, at this project of Columbus Day is, is part of it is celebrating the positive legacies of Christopher Columbus himself, but it's also intimately tied into the place of Italian-Americans in American life who were not always at the center of American life, who were often marginalized as many Catholic immigrant communities were throughout the 19th century, early 20th century. And one of the things that I think President Roosevelt has in mind is part of this is crafting a shared national identity that embraces newer communities in America, like Italian Americans. Um, and I think the idea, the idea of when you make it a national holiday is it's no longer something for Italian Americans. It's, 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 it celebrates, in part, the contributions of Italian Americans, but it also incorporates that into a national identity in a very visible, public way.
2: Do you think that's effective?
1: It was effective for Roosevelt in terms of building electoral strategy. <laughs> um, I mean, that was that was his plan. You got to give a little something to everybody. I'd I'd kick that up a notch and say that this was also about Catholics in America because yeah. the, the most opposed group to Columbus Day was the Ku Klux Klan, which had been reborn in the nineteen twenties. Is not simply an anti black organization, but also anti Jewish and, and anti Catholic organization, and. Columbus was a figure who was already celebrated by all Americans, right? Yeah. And because he's already celebrated, you say, "Wow!" So we can go back. Bef- we can go back before George Washington. We can we can track back before John Winthrop even. We can go back before the Pilgrims, right? And, and here you are, and here's Columbus, and he's Catholic and he's Italian, but he but he sails from Spain, and here's somebody then deeper in the past who all Americans can lay claim to, and by the way, he happens to be Italian, and he happens to be. Catholic, and that's, that's sort of the goal with that holiday. The question is, in a country like the United States, as we've become now so broken down into identitarian politics, I think Sarah is right that you can't, you're not going to make everybody happy, and there's some really small but vocal groups who everybody would love to have their own day or their own month.
0: Yeah, and there's only so many days to go around. There's, <laughs> um,
1: the church found that out with feast days during the Middle Ages. Right? Yeah. There's so,
0: one of the interesting points of where this this controversy is, it's not merely about Columbus Day, but there is now Indigenous Peoples Day, which is of a more recent vintage and honors the First Nations of the Americas, their history, their cultures. And the original form of this was uh, first established in South Dakota in 1989 under the name Native American Day which was to be celebrated not alongside, but instead of Columbus Day in South Dakota. Um, some other states have since the 2010s followed suit adopting Indigenous People's Day. Some have sought to replace Columbus Day, while others have sought to have them celebrated side by side. Um, so you have an interesting when we talk about about, you know, the origins of, of Columbus Day as a national holiday as being an effort to include Italian-Americans. Uh, President Ro- uh, President Roosevelt was from New York State, very large Italian Catholic populations in North New- And in South Dakota, we have a very large uh, native population, lots of First Nations people in South Dakota. And this is part of an effort in South Dakota in the late 80s, early 90s that's also ensconced in South Dakota politics just as much as these sort of national Columbus days are. So the question I have is, is there necessarily a tension between these? As we've seen play out in some state legislatures, there's a tension – We noticed last year President Biden issued two proclamations, one celebrating Columbus Day and one celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day. So at least there there's there's there's, uh, you know, a modern, you know, very contemporary effort. Um, Today is the day. So I have not seen any proclamations yet that President Biden may issue. But if last year is any indication, he seems to be seeing these things as not being intention and things that both of which all Americans can celebrate.
1: I, I read both of those proclamations as show prep, yeah. right? And I would, if you read the proclamation on Indigenous Peoples Day, I, I can't find anything in there to disagree with or to say is historicist or ahistorical. What's clear is that proclamation is saying here are the Native American Indian contributions to American society. The government's committed to honoring treaty obligations, et cetera, et cetera, which the U.S. government has said many times. Over a couple centuries, sometimes but, uh, more genuine, sometimes is, more sometimes genuine than others. Genuine. Sure, yeah. it, but if you read the proclamation on Columbus Day, it doesn't really read like it's about Columbus and exploration. And I think maybe that's his best value to us is just kind of that human spirit that can say, I'm going to go out and do this thing and nobody else thinks it's going to work. Not because the earth is flat. Nobody thought the earth was flat, right? But ju- just because of the distances, et cetera, and it's not going to work and he's doing it. You read his journals and it's kind of exciting like, well, we saw a tropical bird today. Now we saw two birds. There's a log floating and they're, they're out there and they're they're looking. But if you read the proclamation on Columbus Day, it's not about the human spirit and creativity and exploration and some of those things that uh, uh, we could use a lot of just, just in terms of uh, the cre- economic creativity, right? What you get is a lot of Italian-Americans have been great in this country and then a paragraph of how awful the Colombian exchange was for the natives. And that's, that's kind of it. I mean clearly it's, it's an identitarian document. And not so much about somebody who we all can own. There's still this sense, at least in the president's proclamation last year, that this is a holiday for Italian-Americans. So don't worry. I like Italian-Americans, too. You know, sign on the dotted line.
2: That was my sense as well. And I, I'm I'm questioning whether perhaps having the celebrations on different days would be effective. Like, I just wonder what, what it would mean to, cele- to separate the celebrations. Last year.
0: They 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 don't always fall on the same day.
2: Okay. So this year is just in particular. Okay. Perhaps being separated by a little more time would help the nation in general focus on one or the other. And I, I like what you said, John, about focusing on the heroism and the human spirit of exploration. And in the address on Columbus Day, Biden talks about all who have contributed to shaping this nation. Whereas in the one for Indigenous Peoples Day, he says in honor of our diverse history and the indigenous peoples who contribute to shaping this nation. So there's there's sort of a general and then like a subset. And I feel like it would be interesting to see if we honored perhaps all explorers on a particular day. Explorers Day. Explorers
1: Day. day. Um, yeah.
2: Those who have contributed to shaping our nation. And Maybe Columbus is the figurehead of that.
0: Throw in Neil Armstrong. Sure.
1: Lewis yeah. and Clark. Our, our yeah. nation is named after an explorer. It is. So sure. sure. Does he get his own day? I mean, he yeah. could... doesn't even get his own day. So yeah. in, in college, I read a book uh, uh, by Perry, Perry with an A, The Age of Reconnaissance. And I remember it really grabbing my imagination. And it was about this age of reconnaissance. It started with Henry the Navigator in Portugal, who began a— well, I'll say it's a school, but there were hardly any Portuguese in it. It was all almost Italian navigators from, from northern Italy. Uh, and stretching on into uh, you know, the Portuguese efforts to uh, sail around Africa, which was one potential route to Asia. Then the other project, was, which was to sail around the world and get to Asia that way. But the whole uh, mapping the oceans, the currents, the different seasons, where to land, how to get through areas with shoals. It's great, exciting narrative. I think if we're going to if we're going to think about Columbus, we don't we don't want to lose sight of that because of the ensuing centuries and the conquistadors and the kind of stuff Las Casas describes. I mean that that's just a mature way to look at the past. We don't want to bury it either. Nobody I don't think any American should die on the hill of having to defend Columbus's perfection or somehow pretend that the horrors of the conquest did, didn't happen. I mean, we don't have to do that either. We just want to we just want to assess the past for what it is and the human person for what uh, he is.
2: I agree with that. And I think having a day for indigenous peoples does celebrate the contributions of the indigenous peoples of America and also calls to mind the history. But I think it's also a consideration of what's the nature of celebration? What does it mean to set aside a holiday, a federal holiday to celebrate something? I I was musing about this and I I think there's a distinction between a celebration and a remembrance. Remembrance can be a little more somber, and there's involved sort of a calling to mind of of tragedies and horrors. So 9-11 is a day of remembrance. But I think holidays and celebrations typically have just a more joyful flavor, and they typically highlight the good things and the things that we want to celebrate. So the courage of explorers, the high degree of, um, I guess, intellectual, the spirit of exploration that they had, and and like you said, the precision with which they had to um, take into account all these different factors, the science, the, the currents, all of that stuff. I think I w- I'm interested to, to see what we focus on when we celebrate something, and I think that spirit should emphasize what was good about it. So certainly we don't want to forget the history, but when you're picking a day as a a holiday and a celebration, I think it makes sense to emphasize the high points.
0: Yeah, there's a a wonderful uh, sort of bipartisan consensus in the state of New York in the governor's race coming now. There is a... Legislation uh, in New York State to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day, and both the governor of New York State, uh, Kathy Hochul, and her Republican opponent, Representative Lee Zeldin, have both opposed this legislation.
1: Do so you? There's a bipartisan uh, desire to get the Italian American vote. Or well, this is I, the question. Am I not? Am I interpreting this in an overly
0: so there is, is, this a, is this a particularity of New York state yeah. politics or is this a reflection that maybe we don't have to have a sort of zero-sum way of thinking about our nation's traditions, our nation's culture, that we don't have to choose, that there are ways that we can remember, and that there are ways we can celebrate – different aspects of our history. And there needn't be one narrative to rule them all.
1: Well, let's hope it's the latter. Moving on to our second
0: topic uh, from national debates over our our shared history to sort of international conflict. Um, There have been a number of alarming developments in the conflict in the Ukraine. The first of which I'd like to discuss occurred earlier today, according to Reuters, quote, Russia launched its most widespread airstrike since the start of the Ukraine war on Monday, raining cruise missiles on busy cities during rush hour and knocking out power and heat in what President Vladimir Putin has called revenge for blown-up bridge the bridge he's referring to was destroyed on October 8th and runs from the Russian Federation uh, to uh, Kirk in the Crimea uh, which uh, is not is which is internationally recognized to be part of the Ukraine but that Russia has uh, held a sort of annexation referendum on uh, and considers it an integral part now of the Russian Federation. Uh, Missiles tore into busy intersections, parks and tourist sites in the center of the capital of Kyiv. Explosions were reported across the country and Ukrainian officials said that at least 10 people were killed and scores injured and swaths of the country left without power. End quote. Now, leaving aside the larger questions of the legitimacy of the, of the Ukrainian—of the war in the Ukraine, it seems to me that this latest round of airstrikes was designed to sort of deliberately target civilians and represents a clear violation of sort of principles of just war. What are your thoughts on these latest developments in what seems to be a sort of disintegrating—increasingly uh, disintegrating situation?
1: Well, my own thoughts— on this are that this is this is typical of the Russian way of war. I mean if you if you look at the wars Russia has been involved in since the demise of the Soviet Union and Georgia and Chechnya, etc. It's also a it's a very nineteen forties like way of going to war and really taking it to the civilian population. So I I mean I'm not surprised by it because so Putin's back is against the wall they run these sham referendums in some areas claiming more of ukraine as russia the ukrainians are doing a very good job with nato weaponry against the russian army so there's this there's this type of desperation they said so this is this is the mention of the atomic weapons as yeah. well, and so launching missiles into cave, which has been out of the front line for for a long time at this point. I mean, as far as this war goes, right? And yeah. and here's you know missiles into places at rush hour, uh, so you, the the damage is meant to be so horrific that the Ukrainians will will stop. They'll stop fighting.
0: We have an interesting sort of equivalency drawn. I mean, the, the the reason this bridge was targeted is that this bridge is where, um, the Russian Federation's military is supplied through the Crimea. Um, and there's a sort of dubious false equivalence here. Um, you know, president Putin had called that an act of terrorism and it's like, there is a war on and there are militaries being supplied and, You know, all war is surely a tragedy, but there is a difference between a sort of, you know, legitimate—there is a post-war consensus. You brought up a very 1940s way of doing war. And one of the things that comes out of the final settlement in the Second World War is the international community generally being more explicit about the differences between military targets, civilian targets, the legitimacy of those sorts of things. And I think you're absolutely right that those, that sort of post-war consensus is being ignored and those things are sort of actively being conflated by the Russian Federation now um, due to an increasingly uh, desperate situation on their part. We've also had mass mobilizations, a new round of mobilizations. We have many young men in the Russian Federation fleeing to Kazakhstan, to Georgia, to neighboring places because they do not want to be part of this they do not want to enlist Um, we have seven million ukrainians over seven million ukrainians have been displaced by this conflict and i fear that we're going to see an increasing number of russians displaced from this conflict that do not want to be part of this sort of total war
2: yeah i see in this new round of strikes i see just fear i think it's an attempt to inspire fear in civilian populations and I see also kind of a, that desire for revenge coming out on both sides. Um, when you I watched a little bit about the burning of the bridge this morning, and some reactions from the Ukrainian population was, we were waiting for this. We wanted to see this happen, and now it's happened. And there's obviously the retribution on the Russian side as well. Um, I don't know if there's a, a regard for justice. there's just a lot of revenge. And those sentiments, I don't know if they belong in the just war theory. I don't think they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just see the the fear and the reaction of horror, um, at least in me, that's what I've seen. Reading these stories, it feels like reading a history book. And, and I'm too young to remember the Cold War. And so all of this is it's just very new and it's very shocking.
1: One thing worth pointing out maybe is that the the bridge in Crimea so Crimea is claimed by Russia Russia has annexed it in Putin's mind this is an attack on Russia not an attack within Ukraine against Russian forces that might also explain the level of response yeah right? which is which has been the threat of course of those newly annexed regions
0: yeah i'd like to turn to that now now th- there's a political dimension to this to this conflict and and John has touched on this a couple times now um And that is that political dimension has expanded with a series of referendums held recently in four regions where the Russian Federation has a military presence in uh, the east and south of the country. Now, as reported by the Associated Press, the Ukrainian President Zelensky responded to the annexation by announcing Ukraine's fast-track application to join NATO. In a decree released Tuesday, he also ruled out negotiations with Russia, declaring that Putin's actions made the talking to the Russian leader impossible. In his nightly address, Zelensky switched to Russian to tell the Kremlin that it was already lost—that it is already lost because it still has to explain to Russian society why the war and mobilization are necessary, end quote. Now, these developments are very, very concerning because um, these actions have the potential of freezing the conflict in place for the foreseeable future, Um and we've we've seen this in Georgia and South Ossetia, in Moldova, in a lot of these in, in what has happened with Crimea for now, you know, close to it close closer to a decade than not. Um, these sort of political actions make it harder for any end of the conflict, to happen uh, in, the, in at least the foreseeable future. How does this affect the prospects for peace and what are the dangers of having a frozen conflict like this where you have, you know, you have two sides that don't even operate with a shared consensus as to the boundaries of their nations um, and it's sort of cemented in the consciousnesses of both.
1: When Yugoslavia in the 1990s broke up and then there was a uh, Ongoing civil war until the mid to late 90s in various places in the former Yugoslavia, the result was uh, UN peacekeepers or NATO peacekeepers that are still there in places to this day. I don't think – there's no way Russia would allow peacekeepers into an area that it claims as Russia in these four regions. But this is exactly the area where the, the fighting will remain if it ends up a protracted conflict because they claim this as, as Russia. So it's hard to see this. It's hard to see this ending well. And I, I know what uh, what President Zelensky must mean. Of course, so, look, we want victory. We want we want all of Ukraine. Well, does all of Ukraine mean also Crimea, or does it just mean post two thousand fourteen Ukraine, yeah. but pre Russian invasion Ukraine? So there's there's a complexity there. And it's at some point, I mean, at some point, one would hope. They could settle this, but why—the Ukrainians aren't going to want to settle to the detriment of their territory and their people, and the Russians, I don't see them backing out under Putin.
0: Yeah, and when you have, as, as Sarah pointed out, you know, there, there there's a psychological dimension to this of resentment and revenge, and, you know, there have been— Tremendous sacrifices that Ukrainian people in all walks of life have have made. That's going to make it very emotionally difficult for any sort of political sentiment as well, or, or any sort of political solution as well. Um, and uh, this is this is one of those difficult, you know, things where I, you know, where I see the Russian Federation. I don't, I don't see how at least the current government. Could agree to a peace on a terms that would be satisfactory to the international community, to the Ukrainians. Um, and then, you know, do we go back? You know, one of the ways that these conflicts were settled in that pre-post-war consensus was through things like war exhaustion and people just being unable to fight and uh, that is the likes of – we haven't seen a war like that in a very long time, um, and, that's, and that's very concerning. The, the, last, the last bit – and this is – Sarah touched on this as is, is being, is being too young to have experienced the Cold War. I am just old enough to have experienced Rocky IV and those <laughs> sorts of things in my youth. Um, President Putin has made over the last few weeks several sort of vague insinuations. Some construe them as as sort of veiled threats of a potential nuclear conflict. And uh, the government of Poland has suggested hosting uh, American nuclear weapons in Poland as part of a response. President Biden has suggested that there's a potential for nuclear Armageddon that's as high as we've seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Should we take those sort of threats of nuclear escalation seriously and 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 if those are serious threats, what is the most responsible way forward for both Western nations and and the international community at large when you have those sorts of things weighing over this conflict as well as all these of as all of these frozen conflict difficulties with an increasingly fragmented political landscape.
1: Should we take them seriously? I think you should take any threat by a nuclear-armed nation seriously, especially when those are in the rules of engagement for the Russian military. That is a tactical use of nuclear weapons when Russia proper is is threatened. Um, so, of course, we should take that seriously. This is a, this is another one of those questions, though, where well, where does the NATO involvement stop in helping to defend a non-NATO country? But one which, for all intents and purposes at this point, may as well be a NATO country because it's getting its weapons from NATO. And at what point do you cut off the weapons and say, well, the Russians are using tactical nuclear weapons now, so we're going to back off? Mm-hmm. That's that's a question I can't answer, but it's, it's a question I, I hope people smarter than I am are thinking about and more aware of the situation on the ground there are thinking about. That's what they need to be. That's what they need to be thinking about. I I don't think you'll find a lot of people who would, in, in America anyway, that would think uh, a nuclear Armageddon is worth defending three regions in Ukraine. So then what do you do when you're the policymaker, right?
2: I think it's trying to find a balance between a deterrent and escalation. And you have the Polish foreign minister saying the consequences if there were a nuclear episode should be non-nuclear but devastating. And I don't have any ideas on how to find that balance. I think there should be some sort of response um, to prevent further escalation, but I don't know how you do that without promoting it.
0: Yeah, we live in an interesting time technologically because there was a time when there was a very stark difference between the power of nuclear weapons and the power of conventional weapons and our conventional weapons have become much more deadly. Um, That gap is closed. Um, At the same time, there is, I mean, sort of one of the principles of how, I mean, we've had armed conflicts between nuclear powers before. We have had them between India and Pakistan. And those were settled without resorting to nuclear weapons. And I wonder how much of just the presence of nuclear weapons has acted as a fantastic deterrent to nuclear conflict since 1945. And, but I don't want to see that genie out of the bottle because that not only would affect this conflict potentially, but future conflicts in other parts of the world with nuclear powers. And I think that that's a very Dangerous precedent. Um, Now, how do we successfully de-escalate this so that doesn't become an open question, not only in this conflict and the devastating conflicts it would have on both sides, but, but from spilling over into a sort of new way the world perceives the use of nuclear weapons as something that had been unthinkable for generations now becomes a live political and military option?
1: The Cold War is good to draw on here then. So if you think about all the proxy wars between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, none of them which went nuclear, and the United States supporting the Afghans against the Russians for a decade, for instance, the Russians supporting the North Vietnamese, etc, the, the Chinese involved in Korea, I mean, you, you you name it all those different proxy wars, big and small during the Cold War, none of which turned into a nuclear war between the Soviet Union, and, and the United States. But the other thing is, Dan, I'd say your, your question of just using the first person plural, saying like, what are we going to do about it? I don't know. Maybe maybe we're not going to do anything about it because this is a war between Russia and Ukraine, and maybe the United States really isn't in charge of the world. <laughs> and we might be a member of NATO, but Ukraine's not. And so, they, I mean, these are the kind of questions that are going to have to be faced when we talk about uh, to escalate or not escalate? Or what should the response be? Yeah.
0: That is, that is an interesting... Because this is this is one of the other interesting things about this war that sets it apart is that a great many people slip, slip into the we, as I have. Um, there's a sort of vision of the international order that I have that is much more resonant with the claims of, you know, Ukraine to its territorial integrity towards international law. But there are also folks who slip into that we on the other side of we that oppose this sort of international order that aren't necessarily Russians either. Um, You have uh, India has very assiduously distance itself from taking any side in this conflict. There are other nations. Belarus is beginning to mobilization now, um, thinking that the actions of the Ukraine uh, <clears throat> in Crimea pose a threat to their vision of the international order, which is much more consistent with Russia's vision of the international order. So maybe that is the first step forward in is realizing that maybe what will result from this is not a total victory for any sort of vision of the international order, but a sort of ideological demobilization has to happen first and that people have to work towards realizing that there will be prudential sacrifices that will have to be made, on all sides for there to be any sort of temporary if not enduring lasting peace um sarah as 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 someone who has less of a time horizon on these on these international conflicts than john and i do what's what's your perspective on on those sorts of prospects
2: well my thought is that as i said when i read these news stories it feels like a history book because I haven't experienced it in my lifetime. And my hope would be that with a historical perspective, we come to, like you said, kind of an ideological victory, or not even ideological, but... um, An ideological
0: de-escalation.
2: Sure, sure. And a victory Mm -hmm. of principles. Mm -hmm. I would hope that with the question of nuclear conflict, we look at our history and we see the mass destruction of human life as the greatest evil on both sides, and I, I would hope that that dictates our future actions, um, and I'm saying our again, <laughs> the actions of all the nations who are involved on a national and international level. I would hope that the foundation of human dignity is primary in people's thoughts in both respective governments that are involved, and I think the casualties and the tragedies that we've been seeing in the news, while awful, can help cultivate that perspective and, and people will start to say no more. And you'll see, as you said, there's you know inner turmoil within Russia where people don't want to be drafted because they don't believe in the war. And I, I would hope that those principles and the underlying dignity of human beings comes to the forefront.
0: I think that is a fantastic way to end as a, as a principled, centered podcast. Let's call it a wrap here. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you are listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind in your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Sarah. Thanks to John. For the Acton Institute, I'm Dan Huger. We'll see you next week.